0: Well, Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Now before we start this week's show, I wanted to let you know about our next live Bigger Questions recording, which has been recorded here in Melbourne late next month. Now the question of the reality of God is a question which polarizes and divides. So why is there such passionate disagreement, and does what we believe even matter? Now, If you're, if you're sick of shouting and simple arguments, then this conversation is for you. We ask two of Melbourne's finest philosophers from very different backgrounds and worldviews the big question: How can we learn to have better conversations about God? Now, I'll be speaking with Professor Graham Oppie, an atheist expert in philosophy of religion, and also Professor Greg Restall, a Christian professor of logic, at seven p.m. on Tuesday, the thirtieth of July, at Campari House in the city of Melbourne. You can get your tickets at citybibleforum.org/conversations. Now, tickets are limited, so you need it to get in quick. So why don't you come along, ask your big questions, bring other big questioners, and experience bigger questions live. We hope to see you there. The conversation will be longer and more extended, an opportunity for you really to ask your questions. I hope to see you there. Also, it's nearly the end of the financial year, and as you plan next year's budget, why not set aside a couple of dollars to support more quality conversations? Invest in bigger thinking and support us on Patreon. For as little as US $1 a podcast, you can help create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. Well, now to this week's show, and which is particularly appropriate given the new dystopian television series Chernobyl, and also the release of the third season of The Handmaid's Tale. I hope you enjoy the show.
1: This is Bigger Questions, with your host, Robert Martin.
0: Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question dystopia? What are you afraid of? Now we're asking this question today to two people. First to Shane Rogerson. Shane is Senior Minister of St. Matt's Anglican Church in Peran. He's passionate about engaging with the bigger questions of life and he joins us now. Please welcome Shane Rogerson. <laughs> Shane, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you, Rob. We're also asking this question today to Stephanie Gere. Now, Steph runs a Melbourne-based catering business, works part-time with City Bible Forum, and is a passionate reader, and she joins us now. Please welcome Stephanie Gere. Now, Steph, regular listeners of Bigger Questions will be familiar with you, even though this is actually your first appearance as a guest, because... It's actually your voice that begins each episode Indeed. of the show. So, go on, can you give us maybe a demo, Steph? Just to tell us, you know, <laughs> see the face behind the... or hear the voice behind the voice, you know, maybe... You know, OK, I'll on. do my best. Give us a go. How does this it
1: go? is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Very That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah.
2: Very good.
0: And then everyone usually cheers and there's uproarious applause, etc. What do you think, Shane? Was that all right?
2: Very good, very good.
0: Yeah. Good, good. So well, to kick off Bigger Questions, we'd like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Though given the nature of our topic today, fun may be a little bit hard to find. But we do acknowledge that today's conversation may raise some disturbing ideas. Now today we are asking Shane Rogerson and Steph Gear about dystopia, particularly that found on our popular TV screens. So, Shane and Steph, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about dystopian fiction. Now, do you feel qualified at all? A little bit. A little bit? What about you, Steph? You feel like okay? you feel. I
1: think less than Shane.
0: Okay, <laughs> right, okay. Well, there's two questions, both multiple choice. We'll see how you go. Question one Which of the following books would not be generally understood as dystopian fiction? Is it A, The Hunger Games? B, 1984? C, The Handmaid's Tale? Or D, Where's
2: Wally? (laughs) So which of the
0: following would not be generally understood as dystopian fiction? So, Shane, maybe you
2: can... I I was going to phone a fan on this one. I'm going to say Where's Wally, although I would think there are better dystopian fictions than others, and I'd put... Hunger Games down the list uh, sure it, anyway well, that
0: says more about you perhaps Shane anyway I love the, I love the Hunger Games what about you Steph you, you're gonna
1: I would agree with Shane given my limited uh, reading of dystopian fiction but my extensive reading of Where's Wally I would put D please D. as the answer and that's correct
0: yes well done, <laughs> yeah. well done. okay question two we're really sweating now oh, yes. <laughs> which of these fiction books has sold the most copies is it A, The Hunger Games, B, 1984, C, The Handmaid's Tale, or D, Where's Wally? So which of those fiction books has sold the most copies? James. I'm going
2: I'm to go on the historical perspective and say... Uh, all has been around longer, and so it's probably 1984. Okay, right. Although yeah. there's been a massive resurgence in Hairmaid's Ma- Tale since the the, ter- ter- the, to the TV series. series was released.
0: Yeah. Yep, yeah. Okay, so you're going to go for the A and C, is that right? A, so B and C, yeah. or just B?
2: I go B, maybe C.
0: Okay, what yeah. about you, Steph? Which one are you going to go? Hunger Games, 84, Hairmaid's Tale, or Where's Wally?
1: Maybe I'll be controversial and go with D again. I'm going to say that Where's Wally is popular, really popular.
0: Well, you're both right that they're both popular, um, but the, actually, the answer actually is well, B or A, depending on which facts or alternative facts you kind of wanted to believe. Um, because 994 has sold 30 million copies and is the number one bestseller, but The Hunger Games has sold $65 million sorry, 65 million copies as a trilogy. So all three of them have sold more copies, but 994. So the correct answer is actually B. The Handmaid's Tale was the most read book of 2017, but hasn't quite caught up to the astronomical scales of the other books yet. And Where's Wally has only sold a mere 55 million books, but in 13 books. So he sold more than 984, but less than The Hunger Games. So perhaps, yeah, you could perhaps be both correct in some way. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone wins. Uh, it depends on which facts or alternative facts you get. Anyway, Shane and Steph, big brother may be watching, and that would be, he would be pleased because you both passed. You got one or two out of our smaller questions, right? Big round of applause. Well done. <laughs> Well, dystopia, it's very, very popular, but what do you think would make something dystopian?
2: Well, dystopian means uh, a bad place Mm -hmm. or not in a good place. And uh, I thought about this beforehand. I I think it's a dystopia in terms of the literature and the the movies. It's the worst imaginings of ourselves as a cautionary tale in a not-too-distant future. Okay, right. And Do you you have anything to add to that, Steph, or is that...?
1: To a certain extent, it's the um, the contradiction of utopia, the idea being popularised by Sir Thomas More in the 1500s when he wrote a book about a utopian society. So uh, it was very low crime, good food, good health, everybody got along. Um, just a, so.
0: sort of the subversion of a utopia yes this is a dystopia indeed right okay yeah well at the start of 2017 the book 1984 experienced a resurgence of sales with sales jumping at nine and a half thousand percent and the book jumped to number one on the amazon bestseller list now the book was published 70 years ago so why do you think it's made such a comeback Steph?
1: i read an article about this just recently um apparently the sales of the book went through the roof, uh, requiring another print run after the White House Press Secretary, Kellyanne Conway, used the phrase alternative facts in a speech that she gave on television.
0: So, so what do you think that means? The, the How was the connection there with 1984? I guess
1: the people who perhaps had read the book as a high school text or f- were familiar with it from their younger days noticed um, a similarity or found resonated with that phrase that she used and they were suspicious of it.
2: partly the unprecedented power of the United States of America, the potential for it to become a totalitarian state, uh, its ministry of love exhibited in um, the the prison camps of Abu Ghraib, alternative truths and uh, propaganda. It's it's, uh, raised a lot of concerns and and really uh, prodded the fears of people who worry about uh, absolute power corrupting absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. What do you think that attracts people to dystopia? What particularly do you think attracts people to it?
2: Well, I think we have fears. Part of the, the very nature of humanity is we're, we're a whole mixture of hopes and fears and and visions and dreams and and so we're motivated by our fears and uh, the thought of our fears coming to reality is is quite palpable and, and therefore we're drawn into the, the possibilities of those fears becoming real. Mm. And that's
0: where dystopia
2: would sort of reflect that Absolutely. and animate that. Yeah.
0: Yep, Steph, you...
1: I just found it interesting as a a genre dystopian fiction didn't really take off until after World War II where that idea of living in a a disjointed and uh, restricted society had been the experience for the Western world and so they could empathise with the themes of dystopia. Mm -hmm.
2: People are recognising that life is uh, chaotic and disjointed and unravelled and dystopian fiction very much appeals to that sense of life unravelling and mm. becoming something so, of what So we life feels
0: more like a dystopia than a utopia, perhaps. That's right. Right, yeah. So then do you guys like dystopian fiction?
2: I love it. I, I sit down every Thursday night with my wife to watch um, a dystopian uh, telev- television series. Yep. Uh, I, I've read lots of dystopian stuff from... Huxley to Orwell to others. So I, I love it. I, I find it fascinating because I, I like that idea of exploring not only the possibility of, of a great future but also what would a terrible future look like.
0: Yeah, yeah. How about you, Stat? Do you like, do you like <laughs> dystopian fiction?
1: I don't like dystopian <laughs> fiction. <laughs> no? Um, I find it challenging to read. Um, I haven't sought out dystopian fiction to read. Um, every dystopian book that I've read has been a recommendation or a prescribed text
0: Right. Yeah. Mm. So why why don't you, why do you find it challenging? You prefer utopias?
1: I think I do. Yes. (laughs) Even Thomas Hardy, I find a challenging read because often you don't have a happy ending. Mm. Mm.
0: Well, English literature academic Rob McAleer claimed that if the persuasive strategy that governs utopias is hope for dystopias is fear.
2: Is this true? The, The nature of a dystopia is when life unravels. Yeah. Uh, and whatever we idealise, it's the opposite of that. So it's our worst imagining. So, yeah, fear, fear is massive that, that as you as you enter into the world of these dystopias, you start to go, oh, my goodness, imagine, imagine what would happen to my children, what would happen to me, what would happen yeah. to my, the people I care about if that happened.
0: So what particular fears then do you think dystopia sort of taps into?
1: I would say the fear of being unable to express yourself as an individual, the idea of loss of identity, mm-hmm. perhaps, um, loss of hope. What do you think, Shane?
2: Well, dystopias often have totalitarian states, and so uh, uh, freedom is a key theme yep. uh, in dystopian stories. So uh, usually the, the the hero or heroines in the story are, are those who are fighting for freedom of the individual against uh, the state, against uh, big brother, the I, whoever it may be. Yeah. Uh, but there's also other issues in terms of uh, control, how information is used, uh, whether... You, you can actually access truth anymore. Yeah. A, whole, a whole number of things. So,
0: I mean, these are legitimate fears, though. I suppose in some, and perhaps in some people's minds, feel that those fears are being enacted today in our world. I mean, that, would that be reasonable? That these are actually legitimate fears.
2: Well, you do you do see uh, totalitarian dictatorships prop up in the world. So if you just watch the news and you look at the rise of ISIS in the Middle East and and just how appalling uh, women and children and minority groups were treated by this fundamentalist totalitarian regime. Mm. And it's it's horrifying to think that, you know, that could happen in our day and age. Yeah. Uh, yet it is, uh, as we speak. And so to think of that closer to home in the not too distant future, I think really taps into a fear.
0: It's quite terrifying. Yep, Steph.
1: Even uh, currently the loss of privacy is a fear that a lot of us in the Western world would have. Um, information that we have presumably securely stored, uh, being accessed by those who don't have permission.
2: Yes, yeah.
0: So why do you think then fear is so powerful?
2: Uh, because the thing that uh, is presented in your fear is is a potential reality. Mm. So if I think about uh, letting my daughter walk home from a late shift at McDonald's with the knowledge that um, people are out on the streets, potentially going to harm her. Yeah. it's a real, it's a a real potential fear. fear, and so, so I think: do I get an Uber? Do I get a taxi for it? Or do, yeah. I, do I stay up late and pick her up because it's a real fear because of its potent? Yeah. and and the thing about th- these fears, they're real fears. They're not they're not they're not things like phobias that are, are not based in reality. Um, but th- there's a semblance to it, the possibility of it actually happening.
0: Now, religion can also be a force used to intimidate and to control, as seen in the recent award-winning dystopian TV series, The Handmaid's Tale. Now, Steph, you read the book as a high school text and you've watched the TV series. So what did you make of it? Did you enjoy it? I mean, it's dystopian, so perhaps not, but what (laughs) did you make of it?
1: Um, The television show itself is beautiful to watch. It's well-made. I feel it tells the story of the book by Margaret Atwood well. Um,
0: but it's an adult-only kind of TV show, though, really, isn't yes. it? Yes. But I
1: still find it challenging. I was interested to watch it, given that I read the book in high school. I was interested to see how it was treated uh, as a, a visual story rather than just literature. But I'm not sure that I would watch it again.
0: Right. It was jarring. It was challenging. It was, perhaps. yes. Yeah. What, what particularly made it challenging for you?
1: It made me very uncomfortable to think that... This was even remotely possible. The behaviours of all of the people involved, yeah. um, the involvement of the commander's wife in enabling a system where women were oppressed, that there weren't more people who stood up and disagreed with it.
0: Mm. But it did it make you did it make you uncomfortable that it was uh, sort of a religious group? That were imposing, that were restricting women and uh, and basically enslaving them to to be concubines for the, for the for the for the furtherance of the kingdom, so to speak?
1: Yes, it did. I found that given any Bible knowledge that I had, I found that my radar was always switched on. When I heard them referencing Old Testament verses, I would try and think about that in context of where it occurred in the Old Testament and whether their use of it was accurate. And so I was always thinking, is what they're saying true? Is what they're saying fair? Is what they're saying real? And usually it wasn't.
0: So you felt it was a distortion or something of yes. what, the, what the, you can think the Bible actually says?
1: Yes.
2: Yes, okay. So it was deeply de- dehumanising of women. So one of the most disturbing things about uh, The Handmaid's Tale is that women are, are treated as a, a subspecies and a commodity. Yeah. Which is so counter to a, a biblical worldview, which is a fundamentally egalitarian text that gives great dignity and worth to women. But just to see how women could possibly be treated in this, uh, what what really is a sort of neo-puritan theonomistic society. So it's I'll explain that. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind <laughs> of it's, it's kind of a it's it's kind of portraying a, a type of Christian fundamentalism. Although I don't think. It's so much got its sights on Christianity, but fundamentalism per se, right? And it's kind of this reconstructionist world where they're they're trying to go back to some Puritan age, uh, which is you know establishing power, the power of men and patriarchy. But the thing about it is that it's such a misrepresentation of any kind of biblical worldview, and at times they do borrow uh, f- from biblical expressions and texts, which means a person who is antagonistic towards Christianity, and particularly if they've grown up in maybe North American fundamentalist Christianity, uh, it very much gives them something to, to rail against. Sort of latch onto that and say, this is what
0: a totalitarian Christian state would look like or should look like,
2: yeah. But you, both
0: of you would say that's kind of a distortion of what a true Christian perspective would be. Certainly,
1: in my experience, yes. Yeah.
0: So in The Handmaid's Tale then, so what do you think people are afraid of? Is it patriarchy or is it religion or is it a combination of both?
2: Uh, To understand Margaret Atwood in her original novel, uh, when she wrote it, uh, she wasn't even writing it as a feminist, uh, but she was writing it as a a person who was concerned about how patriarchy was abusive in its use of power. And so there's definitely the sights are set on patriarchy and and the abuse of power. Although I think in the modern setting of, you know, 2018, when uh, in North America with the, the, the rise of the right with certain political trends there, particularly um, uh, women's rights, re- reproductive rights and those kind of things, and repealing of uh, laws that were in place, The Handmaid's Tale became a, a cautionary tale for, for feminists to say all the great liberties that women have achieved and, 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 be, and attained uh, could possibly be overturned or set back uh, in, a, in this kind of ne- this neo-fundamentalist future.
0: So what's your reading then, Steph? Patriarchy, religion, combination of both?
1: I don't think it's either. Right. I think it's a story about about fear and about the loss of identity, the loss of expression, the loss of uh, certain freedoms.
0: Right. So at the core of dystopia then is a, a fear of or loss of identity, loss of control and of freedom. So then what does true freedom then look like?
2: Well... Uh, If you go into the story of uh, the dystopian tale, freedom is to throw off these shackles of oppression to fight against it, to to say no to these totalitarian powers and those who seek to control and dehumanise. In one sense, it's a cautionary tale for those uh, who live in the utopia, uh, that is where there's all these perceived... Privileges in terms of individual freedoms, reproductive freedoms, uh, sexual freedoms, although I think that's where I'd want to pull back a little bit because I don't think the answer to freedom is to have absolutely no constraint. Mm. What
0: are your thoughts,
1: Steph? Yeah, freedom is the idea of liberty, uh, liberty of thought, liberty of practice. But if you take that liberty too far, you leave yourself open to all sorts of evil.
0: So you can also, be, true freedom can be almost as bad as um, true oppression perhaps. Or I mean, You don't an- want to push it too far. There's another it?
2: dystopian tale that's, that does that in A Clockwork Orange where he just goes for violence and sex and drugs as much as he possibly can and you see how destructive it is. So I don't think that's the answer. The answer is that true freedom, freedom is actually found in, in, in the right constraints and I often think of the the goldfish you know a goldfish is in the bowl uh it could say i want to be free and so it jumps out of its its environment the the goldfish bowl and onto the carpet uh, and it will very quickly uh, die because it needs certain constraints in which to flourish and so the answer to freedom is not uh, entirely throwing off uh constraints but finding the right constraints in which we can truly flourish Mm. so how do you find the right constraints one of the things that the dystopian stories do is they, they they do get us thinking about what is true freedom uh what does it mean to find my true identity uh and and obviously i would say uh, as, as a christian that it's finding the constraints that help life to flourish best and that's not to totally remove all authority but to find the right authority or if you like a benevolent authority and uh, i've become convinced that that's finding the right constraints in relationship to my creator Uh, a a Heavenly Father who loves me and is for me and uh, gives me constraints that are actually good and for my flourishing.
1: Um, We were thinking in discussing this about stories and how stories can, uh, allegories can, can help us understand... Uh, in a way that we hadn't realised before and I was thinking about the proverbial story of the princess in the tower and how she needs a knight to come and rescue her and recently we've seen stories like Shrek where yes she gets rescued but then you've got the other idea where she is given the skills to rescue herself she is taught that that's the right thing to do which is all well and good but in the biblical narrative if we are the princess in the tower we have no ability, no skills, no way of ever rescuing ourselves. And so we need, we need to be rescued and our father sends his best knight to come and rescue us and that's how we uh, are freed and that's how she knows that she is loved by her father because he sends his knight. But that's also the constraint. If she wasn't rescued, if she had no father, if she had no knight... Is that absolute freedom?
2: If you're a feminist listening to that, they might probably say that's a very patriarchal narrative. <laughs> it right? is, yes. One of the things when you watch The Handmaid's Tale is you look at the kind of men that are in that story and you go, that is not the kind of man I would want to be or desire because even in the way they go about using their power, they themselves are being dehumanised. And so one of the things I think that these narratives do is they get us longing for a person who is truly human, a person who actually doesn't use their power uh, to abuse others, but uses their powers uh, to bless and help others to flourish. And, and so in that story, I think it, it gets us longing uh, for a truly, a true man, a true human who, who won't ever use their power other than for the good of others. And in, in, I think in the story of the, the, the gospel, we actually find that person.
0: This week's big question is about dystopia. What are we afraid of? And uh, the New Testament book of 1 Peter, the author, Peter the Apostle, writes a letter to a group of Christians scattered across the ancient world. He writes in chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, he says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So, Shane, it sounds like the recipients of this letter are suffering in some way. What was their particular situation?
2: Well, they were, he was writing to Christians who were in the jaws of a, a very powerful state,
1: <laughs> almost uh, a totalitarian state.
2: Almost in a totalitarian state where that there was a, a significant curtailment of their freedom. And what Peter wants them to realize is that although that circumstance is one which they, he would prefer them not to be in, their, their happiness, their joy, uh, their flourishing is not dictated by that circumstance because it's dictated by who they're in relationship to, who is their God and therefore they can actually live, even in the worst of circumstances, although they may want to change it, they can live in that circumstance, not subjugated by that fear because they have a greater fear of the one who is sovereign, even over that terrible circumstance.
0: Peter goes on then uh, to exhort his recipients amidst their difficulties by saying, do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. So why shouldn't they fear? What reason does he have to offer... To overcome fear
2: what i think peter wants uh, his listeners including us to understand is that whatever m- might threaten to overcome us in our fears there is one more glorious one more greater than those things that we fear and therefore um, any fear that we have will be subordinated and brought into balance by one who we fear who is christ as lord and therefore his greatness his goodness Uh, his fear subordinates all those other fears. But he
0: does say revere Christ as Lord. So, Steph, isn't it a scary prospect to revere someone as, as Lord?
1: It depends how they use that relationship with you. If they use it for your good, then surely it's lovely. If you have someone who's there to protect you, to care for you, to help you with your fear, then... That's someone that I want on my side.
0: Hmm. And you think Jesus is that one for you?
1: Yes. Yeah. In what ways has He
0: helped you, protected you?
1: Um, I I struggle with panic attacks um, to the point where, I, like, I'm driving in the car and I panic to the point where I get tunnel vision and I honestly cannot see what I am doing. I don't know whether to slow down and stop right where I am. I don't know whether to pull over. The idea of being hit by another car, you don't know when it's going to happen, you can't see it coming. And one of the most reassuring things is it's just my physical body and if it was to die, then heaven is on the other side and that is really comforting.
0: So having Christ as your Lord is yep. fills you with great comfort it and sure peace and, uh, and allays your fears in some ways. It does. In 1984, Big Brother was depicted as an infallible and all-powerful omnipotent leader and some have drawn connections between big brother and God, you know, a large masculine deity who is always watching you and demands that you unconditionally love and obey him. So isn't obeying Jesus as Lord a, kind of a patriarchal,
2: controlling submission? Uh, he is all-knowing. Uh, he is all-powerful. And he is ever-present. But he's one who I'm confident never uses his power in any other way than for my good
0: which perhaps, Steph, is a bit different to the leaders of Gilead or Big Brother perhaps. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart.
1: Indeed, yeah. I got to the end of 1984 and I was so surprised by the ending that our hero, Winston... Smith. Yes, that he, he only loved Big Brother... Because he had no other relationships, all other human contact was removed. He was an alcoholic. And that's not God's character at all. God desires us to have friendships, to have relationships. And that's a reflection of his love for us.
0: Mm -hmm. That's what it means to have Christ as Lord. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, Shane and Steph, as we've thought about dystopia today, what are you afraid of? Maybe we'll start with you,
1: Steph. Public speaking. (laughs) (laughs)
2: I could say uh, in relationship to dystopia, I do think we need to take these cautionary tales on board and say I I never want to be the type of man who would ever abuse the powers and responsibilities that have been given for me, but only ever use them for the genuine uh, blessing and flourishing of others. Uh, Because to do anything other than that is to actually become part of that dystopia where life unravels. Uh, But I will fail in that at times so I can know that I can look to the one who never lets us down, who never lets life unravel uh, because uh, he always uses his power perfectly for my good and I can entrust myself uh, to him. And that subordinates all fears that I have. That's great news.
0: Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, what are you afraid of, from 1 Peter chapter 3. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts. Revere Christ as Lord. I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Please thank our guests today, Shane Rogerson and Stephanie Gear.